Welcome to The Bike Show here on Resonance FM with me, Jack Thurston. This is the weekly show here on London's community arts station, which brings to the airwaves all matters cycling. From overnight camping trips to the Tour de France, from the history of the bicycle to the future shape of our towns and cities. Last week's show saw me on a ride up out of London on the canal towpath, one of the most enjoyable places to ride a bicycle, not least because it feels pretty good. Um, there's always the risk of going into the water, but all you have to negotiate is the narrow space, obviously with a few other cyclists and people out walking. And um, it all feels altogether more relaxing than riding on the roads for the simple fact that there are no motor vehicles on uh, canal towpaths. And each year on the roads of this country, upwards of 2,000 people are killed and many tens of thousands more are injured in road crashes. It's the perception of danger um, and the realities in many cases that is one of the most common reasons why people don't ride a bike or, or give up if they have tried. Why do we as a society tolerate this level of carnage? And I can't really think of another word from it than carnage. And then what can be done to make roads less dangerous? Well, here in the studio to help answer some of these questions and debate the issues around road danger and road safety um, is Dr Robert Davis, author of the acclaimed book Death on the Streets and currently serving as chair of the Road Danger Reduction Forum. Welcome to Resonance FM. Hello, Jack. Hi. May I dispense with Dr Davis? I can yeah, OK, you can call me Bob. I, I can yeah. call you Bob. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I don't want to drown ourselves and the listeners in statistics, um, but I think it would be helpful to have a brief overview of the situation. Um, I described it as carnage. Um, it's a lot of people losing their lives. Well, it, that's very interesting because people always come up with what may or may not be a big number, and they then quote that number, and from that they put forward their prescriptions of what they think ought to happen. And what I'm interested in doing is actually trying to disentangle what that number is, because I think it can be quite misleading in terms of uh, giving a good picture of what's happening and actually pointing us in the right kind of direction. And I think the first thing is that that number 
could be said to be quite big. But as uh, people in the official road safety lobby will tell you, it's a number which has gone down uh, more or less continually since uh, records were first uh, put together in the late 20s. And it's now at its lowest ever number. And per head of the population, it's one of the lowest in the world, one of the lowest in Europe. And uh, you can say, well, uh, look, you know, that's about six people killed every day. Uh, but uh, you, we live in a country of about 60 million people. It's actually that you have a very low chance of being killed on the road. I think it's particularly important to actually say as a cyclist that uh, although your chances of being killed because you're not in a large metal box protected from the outside like a, like a tank, that... Uh, you obviously are more vulnerable than uh, people inside cars. It's important to say you actually have quite a low chance of being hurt or killed on average. However, on the other hand, I'd say that those numbers can actually minimise the amount of danger which is out there. And they can minimise that partly because uh, you obviously have people who receive serious injuries and slight injuries and who get put off from cycling, as you said yourself earlier. Uh, you also have loads of car crashes so that there are about uh, between 10 and 20 times as many uh, car crashes occurring as incidents where people get reported as hurt or killed. And on top of that, you have, uh, most importantly, literally billions of instances of careless, dangerous, rule-breaking, law-breaking, criminally negligent rule-breaking uh, activities by people who are motorised which have the potential to hurt or kill other people and that of course can create amongst uh, actual or potential cyclists the feeling that they don't want to be out there it will stop parents from allowing their children to walk to school or cycle to school so in one sense you can say it's quite a low number in another sense you can say the actual problem is a lot bigger and just one more thing I think I need to say is that the reasons that those numbers, that grand total, has actually come down are a matter of substantial debate and discussion. OK, uh, well, let's, let's get on to that discussion in a moment, but I want to just rattle through some of the statistics. Within that um, 2,000 or so, it's, I think it's in recording the last year, 2010, 840-some-odd deaths were of car drivers, 405 among pedestrians... Um, both down on previous years, cyclists 111, so much less than pedestrians, but I guess there are fewer cyclists than walking people and driving, but the number was going in the other direction. Is the increase in cyclist casualties accounted for by increased level of cycling or is cycling becoming more dangerous? Well, uh, first of all, it's... uh, I know you can't do one year, another year. You can't do one year and another year, and actually it's only about seven differences, seven... as a difference between those two years, has uh, been a slight increase in cycling. You can't really make much sense of that. Uh, let me let me just spend a little time, if I can, on on that figure. It's about a hundred deaths of, uh, of cyclists now. In the mid thirties, there were about fourteen hundred cyclists killed uh, in that year. Now you could say that was nineteen thirty four, I believe. Um, you could say, well, look, you know, obviously things have got a lot better. But it's not as simple as that, because between the mid-30s and now, we've had massively improved medical facilities which uh, look after people in, uh, with trauma care and with uh, high-quality emergency services so that you can more or less cut that figure in half. 
on top of that, there were probably about four times as many people riding bicycles. Uh, on top of that, uh, motorisation was in its infancy. People were not used to cars being around. The people who were cycling were far more heedless. They weren't watching out so much. So that explains why there was this apparently much worse situation uh, in the mid-30s, whereas in fact you could say, well, hang on, if we have emptier roads, if we feel it's okay for people to go out to be relaxed when they're cycling... If their chances of being killed are not that much difference when we've factored in the medical facilities, um, actually things haven't got that much better. So what I'm trying to do is to say that the figures which are actually quoted as the indicator of how bad things are, of how hazardous it is to ride bicycles, um, are not that clear cut. So when someone comes along and says, well, it's got a bit worse or it's got better, better, it's... It's not that clear. You can't really tell. OK, well, I would just at this point, I want to bring in um, a clip from Val Shawcross. Um, Val is a member of the London Assembly, um, previously responsible for chairing the Fire Brigade Authority. And she, I was talking to her a little while ago about transport issues. And this is what she had to say. I've spent eight years chairing the fire brigade in London and, uh, you know, very important role I felt and I took it very seriously. And there are about 50 fire deaths a year in London that we want to avoid. When I shifted over to look at the transport brief, I think what shocked me was the, the massive numbers of deaths and injuries we have on our roads in London. And some are other because they're deemed accidents or private events or personal tragedies or um, they're happening between private vehicles sometimes. They're not seen as a matter so much of public policy and public concern. And um, you know, we're spending four hundred fifty million pounds running an excellent fire brigade in London to save deaths from fires, and there's about fifty deaths a year in fires in London. And I'm looking at the road accidents happening, and they're clocking up incredibly quickly. Now, you know, we've got to shift priority towards looking at these deaths. Uh, they are preventable. This is a simple thing that we could be doing, and uh, it's time that we actually applied as much moral outrage as we rightly do to knife crime in London to road deaths. Um, just because there isn't any malice involved in in these deaths doesn't mean uh, that we shouldn't be outraged by them. Well, that was Val Shawcross, a uh, member of the London Assembly. I think it raises a lot of points. Um, do you have any immediate reaction to what well, Val I mean, had to say? She's right in that uh, because it doesn't involve malice, you shouldn't uh, disregard it. It is crucially important, in my view, that we take the business of endangering other people uh, tremendously seriously, um, that we employ the same, you know, not even as much uh, commitment that we have towards safety in health and safety at work, maritime safety, aviation safety, uh, safety on the rail system, which we hear a lot about. And we should, in my view, try and think about the, the process of endangering other people in the same way. But that's different from looking at that overall totted up number. Sure, so sure. Was, I mean, I think we moved on from that discussion. Well, the, the, it, the, the, what not, I'd like I mean, to I ask must, you about is, you, what I'd like to ask you yeah. about is, to what extent the prevailing culture and policy approach of road safety differs from 
as you mentioned, maritime health and safety at work. Is there a is there an ideological yeah. difference here? Well, I mean, the, the, the difference between road danger reduction and the official road safety uh, lobby's approach, which is one which I think tends to accept and collude with uh, danger on the road, is that it doesn't look at the crucial question of who is hurting or killing whom. Uh, in Val Shawcross's piece and in, in the general totting up of the statistics, there is no question of the difference between a completely innocent person walking or cycling and killed or hurt by somebody else and somebody who hurts or kills themselves, like a motorcyclist going at high speed off the road into a tree. Um, or, 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 there is no way of actually separating those things out. That difference is glossed over and it's absolutely critical to look at that. And that is the thing that I would like to bring in and I would say that is what is important. With any kind of set of actions which endanger or hurt someone else, whether or not they are reported as hurt or killed. So you talk about the distinction between different types of road user, in particular benign road users versus I guess, other road users, non-benign. Do you have a, a label for them? Well, Do you want to elaborate on you, that? You see, the, the official road safety uh, lobby way of looking at that is that you and I, because we don't happen to be inside cars when we're cycling or walking, are called vulnerable road users. Now, I just think I'm a normal human being doing what most people in the world do as a way of getting about. Uh, I think people inside cars, some extent motorcyclists, other uh, motorised road users, need to be seen as the potentially dangerous road users because of the potential to shift kinetic energy uh, on impact onto other people. And that is what I think needs to be done. That's what's been cooled out because the road safety lobby was actually set up partly by the motoring establishment as a way of saying, look, we're all in this together. We all got to make an effort. And, you know, while we all do have responsibilities, there is an absolutely fundamental difference. This is one of the two key points that I try and make between uh, people who are endangering others and people who are being endangered. So you're saying that those people who have chosen a mode of transport that is part of the problem, a heavy, high speed vehicle should be, motorised vehicle should be treated differently from those who are part of the solution. Yeah, is that, is that I mean, fair I'm saying that they, that they should have that specific responsibility which is related to their potential to hurt or kill other people. Now, uh, the fact that they themselves believe that they need to have seatbelts, crumble zones, roll bars, airbags and all the other things in cars indicates that uh, there is some perception that they have a tendency to crash or to do things which are potentially very bad news for other people. Plus the fact that if you look at their third-party insurances compared to the third-party insurance that you have as a member of the London Cycling Campaign indicates that they are of a different order of danger to other people. Now, the Daily Mail, as we both know, has a legion of hacks and letter writers, um, some of them living in Tunbridge Wells, who will, at the drop of a hat, write in and say, oh, I was almost mown down by a cyclist, and then pull up some press clipping that says, this bicyclist knocked over this pedestrian. We had a bill in the uh, House yeah. of Commons, didn't we, earlier this year? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm not saying that people don't have responsibilities when they're walking or cycling. You can knock over other cyclists when you're cycling, you can knock over cyclists when you're walking, you can knock over pedestrians when you're walking, and so on and so on. But essentially, you're talking about a really different order of things. And, you know, you have to keep a sense of perspective of this. If you're going to get that worried about bicyclists posing a threat to pedestrians, you're really just going to end up with banning all people in cars. I mean, it's just ludicrous. So let's get into some of this um, road safety policy that you're critiquing. 
would you say that a lot of the work on road safety has been about taking people away from the street space ostensibly for their own protection but has ultimately been a motorized takeover of the public realm yeah i mean that has happened and one of the things that uh, again it comes back to the numbers it's uh, if you look at particularly rural environments uh you, and you go to the road safety officer the highway engineers and others and say uh this looks kind of hazardous for people walking or cycling they'll look at their figures and they'll say well there haven't been anybody uh there hasn't been anybody reported as killed or hurt walking or cycling there. Well, very often that's simply because they're not there. Now, if you have this kind of tyranny of the official use of road safety statistics, you will miss out on that fundamental fact that danger can exist without anybody being hurt or killed. So you do really have to have an alternative way of understanding what the existence of danger is. That's an interesting question for me because I think that you hear organisations like the CTC saying, you know, it's you could set, cycle to the moon and back six times before you're likely to have a serious um, incident. But then you speak to someone who says, well, I'd love to ride a bike, but you yeah. know what? I just don't fancy it. Where do you, how do you, where does subjective feelings of safety versus road danger meet? Yeah. It's important because the, the whole thing is that when you feel something, you act accordingly. And there are a lot of people who don't cycle because of that fear, and I think we need to understand that. But at the same time, it is the case that uh, one of the positive things is that if you encourage more people to cycle in certain environments, where there are already cyclists, that you can have an effect on the motorised around them. But so this is the argument about this is the argument about safety in numbers. Yeah, it's a, the safety in numbers, critical mass, and it's based actually on something which I haven't mentioned so far, and that is the fact of risk compensation. What happens is that people adapt continually to their perception of danger. That's why the overall road crash numbers tend to go up and down because of things like. Changes in overall levels of risk in society. We're in a recession. That's why, with a declining GDP, there seems to be a decline in overall road casualty numbers. Sorry to go into that again, but it, it, it's backing up the overall persistent fact that people like John Adams, Gerald Wild, myself have constantly pointed out. You get persistent adaptation. Now, the negative fact of that is that when people are in more crashworthy cars, they tend to adapt. They tend to drive less carefully. The positive side for cyclists is, as we've seen in London over the last 10 years or so, that when you have reasonably slow speeds, when you get a lot more cyclists out there, you get a decline in the cyclist casualty rate. So what's happening there that is something which is tremendously positive to report, and it's part of this... Well, it's one of the two things that I need to tell you. One is what I said about the hierarchy of danger, the, the, the dangerous road users um, endangering the less dangerous to others. The other thing is persistent and continual adaptation. You always adapt to your perception of risk continually, continuously and persistently. So what kind of policy intervention should that lead us towards? Well, I think that we need to say what we're really after is not looking at that overall number. We're not even interested in looking at the overall number of, of cyclists hurt or killed. You know, if you look at 
the number of cyclists in, in the Netherlands. There are far more people killed riding bicycles in the Netherlands, but their chances of being killed are about half as high as they are here. We should use as a better indicator the chances of being killed or seriously injured per journey travelled or per, cycle, per, per mile cycled. Uh, that's a better indicator. But I'd go even further and I'd say, what's happened when that injury occurred? Was it because someone got drunk and fell off a bicycle, which is you know, kind of irresponsible, but is not the same as being knocked off by someone else? Um, what was actually happening there? So you need to look at the actual involvement of a third party and the chances of that happening per mile travelled. You need to ask people, have they had to change their journey or to not cycle late on Saturday night because they're worried about drunk drivers or whatever. You have to have a much more careful way of measuring what's happening. And if you're asking me what the uh, policy aim is, the policy is to reduce danger at source, which is from motorized vehicular traffic. And you can do it through engineering vehicles, you can do it through engineering the road, you can do it through proper law enforcement, through deterrent sentencing, but it comes back down to seeing the motorised as the problem and seeing their potential to hurt or kill other people as the thing which has to be controlled, which they have to be held accountable for, and generally seeing that as the problem and acting appropriately. Where do you stand on this great debate that has been raging on the blogs in the last year or two in the UK about segregation, um, s separate infrastructure for cyclists along supposedly the Dutch and Danish models uh, versus the kind of integrationist um, share the road, vehicular cycling, if you like, um, approach? I know they're sort of two paradigms which perhaps are polar opposites and, and, and neither one is entirely going to be the way forward. But what, what, where does your instinct take you on that question? Well, it, it, the main thing to get across is that you mustn't look at uh, specific special answers to the problem, like it's the infrastructure or it's cycle training or it's law enforcement or whatever. You always have to look at it in terms of this hierarchy. So, for example, if you're talking about uh, having segregation, who is space taken away from? Who is it given to? What are the consequences for everybody in the road uh, environment? Uh, you have to think about adaptation. Will other motorists uh, think that because they've seen cyclists somewhere else uh, that they don't belong on the road? How will this work its way through the overall traffic mix? Um, what risk compensation suggests is that because you get safety in numbers and because you get critical mass, you can, in certain situations, actually get a reduction in casualties by not having to go down the Dutch-Danish road. I would also be sceptical about uh, what's happening when people try and transpose something from the Netherlands or, or Denmark without looking at the specific cultural context. And I'd also point out that when people talk about segregation, they are actually saying that's only going to happen on a minority of the roads that we all cycle on. So I have those kind of problems, but everything has to be put into that overall context of how do we deal with treating danger at source. And, yeah, you can engineer the highway environment, you can engineer the car, you can let motorists know they're going to get into deep trouble if they come too close to a cyclist or pedestrian. Whatever it is, you have to approach it with that kind of overall picture in mind. So with, in terms of engineering the car, you're talking about black box recorders, are you? Yeah, you or or that. speed I mean, limiters and that kind of thing? Sure. I mean, we already have uh, automatic braking systems which can be activated by pedestrians. So that would sh potentially shift 
the balance of power over to people outside cars. But everything has to be done within the context of a, a kind of ideological cultural change. Well, we, I'm afraid we have to talk about who are the roads for. And if we're going to have cars around, and yeah, we are going to have cars around, it's who has the responsibility. And if you feel you can't do this as an individual motorist, then your car has to be engineered appropriately, the highway has to be engineered appropriately, and so on. And where are we in terms of the politics of all this? We've got a transport minister who uh, came into office saying that he was going to end the war on the motorist, which has been the Labour Party's policy, he claimed, for the uh, previous three governments. Um, what, what are you seeing coming down out of Whitehall on this agenda? Well, I'm afraid the overall position is, is quite dire because we haven't had a war against the motorist. We've had a war for the careless motorist. I mean, under John Prescott, uh, under those 10 years he was in charge, there was a 30% increase in traffic. Well, if you think that's a war against the motorist, you've got a very different conception from me. Um, so I'm afraid, you know, we've got global warming, we've got noxious emissions, we've got a health crisis of, of obesity, diabetes and so on. We've got uh, the whole issue of conviviality in urban areas. I mean, we have a very, very small amount of cycling in this country compared to others. I'm glad to see it's going up in London, but the bottom line is, I'm afraid, that uh, we have been going in exactly the wrong direction. And the worst thing about the Prescott years is that he gave the impression to some people that he was actually cracking down on, on uh, the car as king, but actually he was doing precisely the opposite. So I'm afraid things have actually been going quite badly. But you and I are still cycling out there, and there are more people cycling and in London, so that's that's good. Politically, is there any hope or, or what, what should we be doing as, as well, people who believe in all this to try and change well, our that, politicians, get that, different kind of laws and that, that's policies? That's why I made my friendly jocular remark about how you and I are still out there riding bicycles. And it is important to try and get more people out there riding bicycles because the more of us out there, we are showing it's a realistic uh, uh, option, but uh, we do have to make it quite clear on, on on the politicians that we have these major problems like global warming, which are really not part of the mainstream agenda, and we actually have to get that on on the cards. Otherwise, uh, a lot more than cycling is finished. Well, thanks, Bob, for coming on the show. The half hour has flown past. Thanks very much. Um, you've been listening on the bike show here on Resonance FM to Dr Robert Davis, chair of the Road Danger Reduction Forum um, and if you want to find out more about that organisation it has a website www.rdrf.org.uk and there are other organisations um, like Road Peace that I think are doing great work too. And in fact, if you're in London tomorrow night, then do head along to the monthly street talk at the Yorkshire Grey pub on Theobald's Road, where you can hear Amy Aaron Thomas, who is executive director of Road Peace, talking about um, towards a safer and fairer city traffic justice in London. That's upstairs at the Yorkshire Grey on Theobald's Road at 7 pm, though the bar is open from 6 pm. Running up to the hour now. One Life Left is getting ready to kick off for an hour of video game and more. I'd just like to say that the orders have been fantastic coming in for the bike show's jersey. And we, we have opened the um, order process up for another couple of days. Another couple of days for you to order your bike show jersey. Find out more about that at the website www.thebikeshow.net. 
where I also publish programme notes for this discussion with Bob and um, a short reading list for anyone who wants to delve deeper into what's a fascinating subject. Thanks very much for listening. Tune in again at the same time next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.